0: Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy graziani Fossbinder, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. It is my joy to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Lisbeth Meredith. Lisbeth was thinking at a time that she was doing everything she could possibly do not to duplicate her own dangerous and abusive childhood. She found that she had somehow fallen into the trap of the treacherous family that made her daughters vulnerable nonetheless. Finally divorced from an abusive ex-husband, Lisbeth's world turned upside down when he abused the visitation rights and left the country with the two girls, landing in his native country of Greece. Pursuing, finding, and rescuing her daughters became Lisbeth's Everything. Her harrowing story is captured in her memoir *Pieces of Me: Rescuing My Kidnapped Daughters*, and it premiered in March of 2022 as the true story film on Lifetime as *Stolen by Their Father*, starring Sarah Drew. Elizabeth is an author, speaker, and online teacher who holds a master's degree in psychology. After a career working with domestic abuse and child abuse victims. She then worked for 20 years as a juvenile probation officer. Today, she's happy to write, to speak, and to teach online from her home in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You can connect with Lisbeth at L-A-M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H. That's L-A-M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H. Lisbeth, thank you so much for joining me on the Morning Glory Project. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, Betsy, I'm
1: so excited to be on the Morning Glory Project. Thank you for asking me to be
0: So tell me, I want to focus on one part of it and then move to another part. Having read your story and watched your story now, there's this pattern that you came from a a, a troubled family. Let's call it a troubled family. I'll let you describe it. But you came (laughs) from a troubled family. And so all you wanted to do is have a different kind of family for your kids which is I think the vow of about 90% of people that come from troubled families, not in my house. I'm going to do it differently. right? Right. That's every mom and dad's vow. If they, if they want to overcome a past. So how is it that you found yourself in some ways duplicating the family, even with those good intentions in mind? You know, I such a
1: good question, Betsy. And I think it's replicating what we have grown up with is a reflex. And doing something different takes work. And I was too young to realize that. And so I literally went to what felt like home. I hadn't dated a lot. So you were young? I was young, not scarily young. I was not like a teenager, but I just was inexperienced and a bit naive, very naive. And when I met someone who seemed to love everything about me immediately. And as a young person, I desperately wanted to believe that was even possible, you know, right away out of the shoot, as soon as we meet. It just felt so great to be the apple of his eye. And yet some of that relationship, he felt like home. And I should have possibly realized that that wasn't a good thing, but I wasn't even there yet in my personal development. I wouldn't have told you when I was getting married, I'm from a dysfunctional home. That would have never come out of my mouth. I would have never said having bloody noses from my parent was maybe considered above above and beyond corporal punishment and spanking. That's not typical. I thought it wasn't perfect, but things are pretty darn good. I didn't want to have a life filled with divorce and domestic abuse or parental kidnapping that separated siblings for our lifetime. That never, ever changed.
0: Well, so that's where I want to kind of stop, because I think that lots of folks that come from troubled families, if there's physical violence or addiction or wild tempers or certain personalities that we're drawn to, I think that's a pattern that that tragically gets duplicated a lot because we like you say we unconsciously we feel like something is home even if we shouldn't feel so comfy right it feels like a well-worn shoe instead of walking around in something different but yours is a more specific replication than that because in your own birth family you talk about being kidnapped, right? And then that same thing occurred. So tell me about the, let's call it kidnapping 1.0 and then kidnapping 2.0 in your mature family, in your adult chosen family.
1: Here's how it was sold to me because I was a toddler when that happened, right? I was just a toddler. So I didn't remember my biological father at all. So when I was growing up, of course, it I looked around at my siblings, the ones that I grew up with, and there were a few of the girls that my mom took and she left the boys behind and then started getting rid of the girls
0: eventually. So wait, 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 decode that for me for a second. So your parents had how many children together? Together, my
1: father and my mother had one, just me. My mother entered that marriage with five others. And they were toe-headed blondes, whereas I had a more kind of a darker skin color under the sun and really dark hair, dark eyes. And I remember as a small child thinking, I do not belong here. And also feeling about Alaska, the place that I grew up in and lived for more than 50 years of my life. This is not my home. And I mean, I felt that deep within my core by the time I was four and five years old, I felt like this is not right. Hmm. So that much I knew, but I didn't really know that the person that was my father figure wasn't really my father for a while yet. But my mom started warming me up to that idea later on in life. Hmm. So it became very clear from her perspective. And I, I'm i not suggesting that her perspective was 100% not true, but there were a lot of untruths in it. So Her perspective was eventually when she started coming clean about my father was, you know, your father is completely violent and tried to kill me and would have killed you. And he didn't want you. And, you know, so there are all these things that as I got older that I was like, wow, this sounds terrible. And from her relationship with the current dad figure, uh, I knew that I already had about as much chaos as I could take. It just was a noisy, loud, chaotic family. I wouldn't have said to you back then, though, no, hey, this is abuse. I would just thought, yikes.
0: But not because that wouldn't have been accurate, because you didn't have the vocabulary or the understanding for that. Right. So so if I'm getting this straight, your biological dad is somebody who wasn't known to you because he, dis- he was parted from you when you were a toddler. And- You were told then that he was abusive and terrible and violent, even though the stepdad or stepdad figure was his own brand of chaos and violence (laughs) as well. He he was, he was, (laughs) but you were, you were told this about your, your biological father. So in other words, your mother kept you from him, right? Is that the kidnapping of which you speak? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So when I was little and they
1: divorced, he had my father. I later learned much later, had visitation rights. Of course, he had part, you know, he had rights to see his daughter. He exercised those rights. Uh, I was his first daughter. And then one day, us children, all of the children that my mother chose to take, there were others she chose not to, but the ones she selected disappeared. And so my father and their father had no idea where we all disappeared to. I mean, it was disappearance, that's it. Nothing could be done that they knew of. And those two men, my mother's former husbands, even though they were not friendly, they did try to support one another to find us for a little while is what I have heard in the retelling. Hmm. So suddenly we were gone. We lost our brothers. They never saw their sister's again, in their childhood like that ever. In fact, I just met one of them after my book was published. Wow. So when I say that we, especially the kids on my mom's side, there were six and on my dad's side, there became more kids because he married again. But with, on my mom's side, I have a sister who's 10 years older than I am. She, from her perspective, always tried to protect us from the chaos, the abuse, the things that were going on, tried to keep us together, tried to make sure things were going okay. And yet when that happened, she's never in her lifetime seen her siblings together again. Like we have never in all of those years.
0: So many losses in that and so much upheaval and strangeness. You know, we had a, a guest on this program before, Michael Lazarin, and he he talks about himself being an erased father right that his his daughter was legally kidnapped from him in in a weird way that's a long story that somebody you can listen to Michael Lazar on another episode but but it's as if your mother was erasing the fathers and some of the other siblings from your life exactly and from the lives of her other children so
1: so very true and The thing is, and this is the hard thing for me to learn later in life, you know, there came a point in my life as I got to know my mother better as an adult, young adult, where I thought, oh, there are a whole lot of untruths that were just flat out lies. And so there is a tendency to want to say everything that that person says then is a lie. And the fact of the matter is, some of what she said had been true. There had been abuse in the marriage. Um, My father was when I finally did meet him, I was 20 years old. So I looked him up through an attorney friend and, uh, I got to meet my father when I was 20. Wow. And one of the first things he said to me, which I admired him. And still to this day, admire his accountability and his courage to say it. He took me to the side immediately and said, I have to apologize to you. I broke your mother's nose. I, you know, I did this thing. I have lived with it my whole life. I am so sorry. There is no excuse for abusing another person. I had no right to do it. And I know it affected your life. And I have to say that really, I'd never heard somebody say there was a violent incident and nobody deserves to be abused. That was not the message I got growing up.
0: Right. So it was really shocking. And Elizabeth, as many times as you've probably told this story, I can still feel the emotion in your voice. Yeah, <laughs> yes, when, you, it, when you admit that, because it's it's such a huge, a, a genuine admission of guilt and apology. A, a genuine apology is sometimes. It's not everything, but it's a lot. It is <laughs> a, lot. a lot. It is. And it takes a lot of courage yeah. to say, because I certainly wasn't going to be asking. This was not a mission for me to find out these things. I- so so let, let me trace this back here because it's such a fascinating story. And I, I want to be careful not to go off on too many of the bunny trails here. Or we're going to get lost. <laughs> so so you came from this, ho- this household where there was this whoosh. And, you know, it, it makes me think of the, the line in the Wizard of Oz. My, people come and go around here, <laughs> yeah. you know, really quickly. So... So here was this whooshing coming and going and changing of fathers and also a generally chaotic, uh, somewhat violent environment. And so, of course, when you met the man that would be your husband and he was so adoring and what they call love bombing. And when he was doing all of this, of course, you were just dry soil for that to just get drunk in. Right. I mean, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is the answer to everything. This is. And, and it's how we sometimes duplicate our patterns without intending. We think we're getting the exact opposite, and it proves to be exactly the same. Exactly. And so here you are. So, so you get married. You you're, He's an immigrant from Greece. Yes. Yes. He was a citizen already. A citi- an American citizen? Yes. By the time I met him, he was.
1: I thought okay. I was so smart to figure that out. <laughs> I thought safe.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you did your due diligence, but not that's right. Quite, that was right. all I did. <laughs> so, so you married, you had two daughters. Yes. And then tell me how your relationship ensued. I think before I had the two daughters, like week number one
1: of being married was horrifying.
0: Hmm. And
1: it only got worse over time. And so, you know, I was especially then I was somebody who really, really, really wanted for things to be different. I did not want my kids growing up in what we would call in that generation, quote unquote, a broken home, not realizing that the breaking was not really about a divorce as much as what was going on in the home. It was broken when I stepped in. So I was committed to, and as a young person might think, um, oh, at least I had the children who would love me. And this gave me a purpose And I'd made my bed and I would lie in it and they would have two parents, those lucky kids, and they would never have to go through what I did, which is look a parent up through an attorney. And then on the back end of life, because I only met my dad a couple of times, then he died. But at least I met him. I mean, I am grateful. But, you know, I thought, well, my kids will have it different. And the truth is, I had to do a whole lot of overlooking and focusing on the girls to convince myself that this was a good thing. It was not a good thing from the start. So you say the first week was hell. Why? Yes. He disappeared. My former husband had this interesting tendency to go radio silent and then just not come home.
0: So you're newlyweds and he just takes a powder. Yes.
1: Brand newlywed and he is who knows where. And so this begins my marriage. And, you know, I had waited. I put a whole lot of hopes, hinged a lot of things on this Relationship and wow, you know, this was awful. And then when I got pregnant much sooner than I meant to, that became it, you know, he and he definitely warmed to having a baby like I did. We both had to warm to the idea. But there was somewhat of a jealousy, I think, that happens sometimes when people are in an abusive relationship. He'd had a lot of control. And I felt very vulnerable. When you have a baby uh, growing inside you, there is a feeling at times of strength and a different focal point. And I felt I was a little bit magical now because I could do this amazing thing. You can make a human. That's right. A little baby. (laughs) And it was so exciting, but it did not make our relationship more solid at all. He became more possessive, more controlling started kind of cutting me off of co- connections that I had, friendships, I got laid off from work. He seemed thrilled with that. Then you're more dependent on him. Right, more and more dependent than my vehicle. I didn't have access to my vehicle for times and less access to grocery money. So soon I was living in a world where if he said some really negative, awful or threatening things to me, there was no one there to counterbalance it. You know, in a normal relationship, you have your friends, your family, whatever, and you tell them if you're having
0: some relationship stress and they'll go, you know what? You're not perfect. However, that's not okay. So you had no sounding board and only your own distorted isolation and your distorted view of what he was doing. Yes. So two babies come. (laughs) Yes. Two babies come. And I shouldn't
1: say no sounding board. There were a couple of people who hung in there with me, but I wasn't telling the gritty underbelly because I wanted people to like him. Right. You know, I have seen this with now my, you know, I wanted people to like him because we were going to make this work. So I was kind of hesitant as to what I said. And, uh, you know, then I have the two babies and he's still disappearing for days at a time. One time he disappeared for an entire week. And, Unfortunately, I'm not a very sentimental person, so I don't think I loved him at this point at all. I mean, I really did not. So I called around and tried to find him this and that, but part of me prayed, let him be, please let him be deceased. It would be so awesome if he died.
0: Well, and, and let's pause there for a second, Elizabeth, because I I know you hesitated saying it because of how it sounds. It's bad, but yes. <laughs> but I would be willing to bet you that every person that's been in a an abusive relationship, at some point, whether it lingers for a long time or whether it's a fleeting thought, they have this feeling, because if, if you don't feel like you can escape, right. but that the other person, if they died, you'd be free, isn't it? normal <laughs> to have that. You're not the kind of person to go around wishing everybody dead. I, <laughs> I know you well enough to know this, right. <laughs> but, but it's, I, I guess I'm, I'm not trying to say it's okay. And you know, we should wish death on people, but I'm saying that I think it's, I think it's a natural thought for somebody who's been in an abusive situation. I mean, I think it's even a natural thought when you're caring for somebody, when you're a caregiver who has a long extended illness. I've worked with clients in the past who feel guilty because they find themselves just wishing that the person would pass because sure. then their life would get easier and they feel badly about that. So I guess I, I'm I'm trying to say for listeners to that I just think it's it's a it's a natural cravings and in particular since he would disappear and you felt less and less powerful, less and less right. influence. If he passed, then you'd be free of that hassle. That's right. The pain, the, the divorce, the, all of that. You'd be a widow. That, that'd be a different kind of parting than your own family. That would fix everything. Right? You would get sympathy as opposed to going
1: through an awful process. That's how I was thinking of right. it. And also I wasn't ready to take control of my own life. I didn't want to. And, you know, it makes sense, but I didn't feel like I could. I didn't know how, and I didn't want to.
0: Well, it's still, I mean, still notice, I'm not congratulating the thought. I'm saying it's it's a natural thing, but I'm saying also, I think that it's still evidence that you were in a passive mode. You wanted something else outside there to fix this problem. Yes. And his death would be... One thing that would fix that problem. It is so true. So, you have, so I want to kind of fast forward here. So, you finally get the courage to leave this marriage, and it is not an easy thing to do. And somebody can read your book to find out all the things that went into that. But you ultimately do. And tell me what happens then. So, I felt like the key to ending
1: abuse was me making good choices. I mean, ultimately, I had this very simplistic view of what ends domestic abuse survivors making better choices. I thought that. And so I wanted to be, because people's opinion always mattered. So it was like, I needed to be a likable quote unquote victim. I didn't want to go back and forth to him. I didn't want to get into a new abusive relationship. Yes, that meant being on food stamps and living in low income housing, which is super scary. That happened after I stayed at the shelter with my kids for a period of time. But I wanted to—I really wanted to nail my role and give the girls a better future. Because I finally thought, after I was strangled, and I think that's the precipitating incident—the uh, day I left him—is
0: he—he tried to choke you, which is a very—oh, he did. He strangled
1: me repeatedly in front of my oldest daughter, and she was two, and screaming, and screaming, and screaming. Because for children who grow up in violence in the home. The person that they love the most is hurting the other person that they love the most.
0: Well, plus it's just scary to be around violence, period. Oh, it is. But when you're a little kid and you feel like the world kind of centers around you
1: at her developmental stage, then whatever happened around her must kind of have been in her fault and in her control. That's how she took it as a toddler.
0: Well, and here you are identifying this in your daughter because you recognize it from your own history. Right. Oh, yeah. So... So you finally get the courage to part from your husband, which is not an easy process. You did it at great personal cost and discomfort and inconvenience and worry and all of those things. And he he finally is given visit, uh, unsupervised visitation back because he's been violent. There's been some right. limits on how his access to the children, but that amount of time passes and he somehow graces his way into unsupervised visitation and on his, tell me what happens then.
1: Four years, so two years after I left him, I finished my college degree, which was great. Got off public assistance, got a great job working with survivors and educating community about domestic abuse. And I love that job, probably still my favorite job of all. Um, You know, met dynamic workers and just loved the work, fabulous survivors. But four years after I left him, so four long years, not Four months, or four weeks, or whatever. Four years after I left, he took the girls on the time that he was allowed, you know, able to see them. Of course, the legal visitation rights. Yep, legal visitation, unsupervised. Supervised visitation is not practical for the lifetime of a child. It's just not. And so, at some point, it has to be relaxed. He got that back. You know, that was a back and forth thing a couple of times and just left the country.
0: And took the girls with him.
1: Yes, he took the girls. He actually took the dog. He had a dog, and he took the dog too. He did a lot of planning. This was not something that he did sloppily. He did a
0: great job of it. And in Greece, he had a very large extended family, so he, he could did. rely on their help.
1: And and they did not know that he was going to show up. And I guarantee you, they did not know. Hmm. For as much as I don't, you know, he and I are not on Christmas card lists, his family could tell you exactly, especially the teenagers who were living in the home where he showed up, they didn't even know he had a second daughter. Wow. Yes. So they had no idea that he was coming, much less that he had a second daughter. There were friends of his that helped him plan it, but it was not his family. They could tell you what it was like to have him show up and two little girls, and then he took off and left the girls behind.
0: So then he's in Greece, and you're here, and you have... Limited funds because you work for a nonprofit and you know you've scraped yourself through school, and he is there and you go to the police and you're reporting this and there's all this chaos because they're with their dad, he has a right to them, right, right there and you get a lot of shutdown along the way. So it right. took you a Herculean effort. It did. To it did to even find where they were and to connect so tell me just a short version of of that period of time the searching time the couple years yeah it so it, it took it, so 2 years from the time he took them till the time you you were reunited exactly a little
1: over 2 years which feels like forever in a parent's life and i've met parents who had decades so You know, it it just was horrific. Trying to deal with any government agency is always stressful.
0: But international government agencies? But our own. But our own. That was the first real difficulty
1: was dealing with the State Department and then the local law enforcement. And the State Department would say, cooperate with local law enforcement. And then I did. And then they're like, you've ruined everything. How could you ruin everything? Why did this warrant get... uh, Know why was there a warrant issued? Now he'll they'll never send the kids back. So just dealing with our own government agencies and the mess in communication was horrifying. Going to Greece, that was, I mean, there are a lot of countries that I would feel less fond of. I love Greece, I love Greece, but it is challenging to go through a foreign government. You have to get your stuff translated you have to find the right person you have to make sure so in addition
0: to language barriers cultural barriers the expense of getting there and getting back the and staying there if you're staying there on top of that the greek system is not flawed as it is the american system has its mess yes but the greek (laughs) system has a different kind of mess and it doesn't necessarily favor women Right and it doesn't necessarily favor American foreign women coming in and taking Greek children away right essentially right it, what i was
1: so fortunate for was being able to connect with other parents and lo- who had kids kidnapped during the process of my own children being missing i was able to connect with some other parents whose kids were out of country in different countries but even the attorneys i hired even greek citizens that i met They helped coach me in what not to do because really when you're, anytime you're visiting a foreign country, you you're playing in their play box uninvited. And here I show up with all my need and I'm ready to like pick it on the streets and call the news and do all of these things that would have never worked and could have gotten me in a lot of trouble. So it was really difficult navigating that.
0: Well, I want to, I want to stick on those two words, Mm -hmm. the really difficult Because, and I'm going to, I'm going to pause just for time because we can't tell all the details of the story and I want people to read your amazing story. This part of the story plays like a detective novel and with all kinds of suspense and had it not been for the help of some and the sneaky help of others, you might not have been reunited with your daughters and been able to bring them home and ultimately we're not spoiling the story to say that this that this happened that the how this happens is fascinating don't let the fact that we know it happens and make you not read the book because it's amazing so you finally do get your daughters back. You get to bring them home. And one would think, well, that's when the music is going to swell and everything's going to be easy because, you know, oh my gosh, this is the romance of the movie and the kids are home and they're going to run to your arms and it's all going to be, I've missed you, mommy. And that was not the case. Tell me what was the case. You know, it,
1: I never estimated how difficult raising traumatized children would be. So really the heavy lifting, and, and you are absolutely right, I would have never had my kids back if people in Greece, as well as people all across the globe, really helped me. But when the kids came home, I lost it. You know, I, All of my holding it together and my emotional spanks, man, they, I busted out. And so the trauma really hit me hard, and I had post-traumatic stress disorder. So the next morning, even when I woke up, I didn't recognize who the children were. Wow. And here they are full of need. You know, they didn't speak English when we were first reunited. They hadn't spoken English in a couple of years. Because they'd been in Greece, because they were how old when they were taken? They were at the best ages in the entire world. They were four and six years old.
0: So four and six, and then they go to Greek for, Greece for two years and speak exclusively Greek. So they came home having lost much of English. Right. And here you were with children that you couldn't speak to, traumatized children that you couldn't speak to.
1: Exactly. I had no more bandwidth to deal. I just didn't.
0: So, what really struck me, Elizabeth, also about your story is that after you know, here in some ways, your story is your story. It's the it's this search and this hunt and this find and this reuniting and the overcoming the past and all that, and that's all true. But when you got your kids back, what? You shared with me in our earlier conversation has really stuck with me in that your children lost everything twice. That right. your rescuing them was your story. That right. was them being torn from another family. Exactly. And exactly. with, with a grandma and uncles and aunties and doggies and you know, right. the, the kinds of things that a child has in a home. So you had that to deal with. They and
1: what made it a little bit easier, but it is true that when a parent goes and collects their kidnapped child, they're ripping them back away from the structures they were familiar with. So for my kids, I can tell you they weren't allowed to see the relatives much. So I didn't take them from the awesome relatives because those relatives didn't get to see them much. But I took them from their toys, their foods, their culture, their father,
0: their language.
1: Everything. Right. Their language boom, abruptly, there we are, come home. And now kids put a pretty bow on it because all these nice people have helped you to come home. Aren't you lucky? And really that's the message they got. Put, you know, zip it. We have a life to live. You probably, and I didn't mean to do this, but I gave them the implied message. You probably shouldn't invent the cure to AIDS and other humanitarian efforts because so many people helped you come home. They were living in hiding. They didn't have access to good food, medical, good people. The school told me when I got to Greece that the kids almost rarely showed up and their
0: mm.
1: schooling was suffering. So they really came from bad situation, one with a lot of health problems. But that being said, that didn't help. That way that old school bootstrap Hush up and don't you dare complain! You got some new toys that all these nice people bought you. Get get your butt back in school! I gotta go to work.
0: And that was rough. When you, I, I can just imagine how you were on some level, sort of thinking, "Whew, this is over." Right? Not <laughs> it like was not. Oh, now it just begins. <laughs>
1: oh, it was not over. Yes, and when I have sometimes I've been able to help with parents whose kids have returned or or en route to returning from another country and. I'm always sad when people think that a trauma is just going to be easily remedied with a few counseling sessions. And look, they're great. Like, oh, it has a way of sticking with us and working its way out. And it really did for my kids and young adulthood.
0: Well, it lives in our cells and in our bones and in our tissues, doesn't it? It really does. In the interest of our time. Oh, I want to talk to you for another hour. Um, But (laughs) in the interest of our time, your daughters are young adults now. Yes. They certainly, it was not an easy path, but they are healthy, happy, lovely young women.
1: They both have plenty of that scar tissue left from that. So it's not one of those things that it's like a faded memory, but they have a lot of strength from it as well. And they talk about it when they want to. And, you know, when the movie was coming out, they even agreed to be interviewed on arts and entertainment. Right. So they were able to share their story instead of me sharing their story. And it felt
0: really good. And we're going to be sharing uh, on our website for The Morning Glory Project at themorninggloryproject.com. You can see that clip of Elizabeth's daughters um, talking about, about this experience afterwards. So I have to ask you one last question. And it's the, it's the big question I ask every single guest which is how did you get through this? What were the practices or rituals or ideas or decisions that you made that got you through not only the loss of and rescue of your daughters, but then their continued care after? What do you think gets you through, Elizabeth?
1: It's such a good question. And I am writing on that very topic now. So that's like the next thing. But one thing that really has important for me is to have that solid support, always developing a support network and finding those role models that I could emulate, tag along with. Um, having, um, Having a good support network is so very important. Unpacking trauma as it comes up, meaning that I was happy to go to therapy whenever I needed to. And when I was on food stamps or on public assistance Maybe I didn't get exactly the care I might have hoped for when I didn't have my own medical insurance then, but I'll tell you something, it was better than nothing. Support groups, peer support groups, were most important for me. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend who once told me, You can't let your mind go crazy when you're in the thick of a crisis. You've got to have a worry hour. You just need to. Keep working, keep going to therapy, keep doing the things that you're doing, employ self-care, exercise all the things while you're, you know, you're going through this awful stuff. But every day devote some time to losing it or feeling sorry for yourself or crying or what if, but the other 23 hours, when you feel those intrusive thoughts, you're going to have to kind of keep it moving. Or you won't be functioning. That's right. You won't be functioning, but you'll also lose your support network. People can't hang in there
0: for years and years and years and years. If you're 24 seven living in. That. Right, right. It's exhausting. So I, I, I'm, I'm not hearing that you fake it and pretend like you don't have a trauma. What I'm hearing is, you know, I'm going to give myself time to indulge this feeling but I'm going to shore myself up so that I can function these other times because I have daughters to care for and a job to do and self-care to exercise and therapy to go to. Exactly. But if I need to bang my high chair for a while, I'm going to let myself do that for a certain portion of each day because it's real and it's true. Does that sound right? Exactly. And we're choosing to work in the systems that I felt
1: failed me, quote unquote, That helped tremendously.
0: So because you ended up working with domestic violence survivors and other people that have had their children taken. Yes,
1: and child abuse and even in juvenile probation because I kept getting that ongoing training on trauma-informed care, on adverse childhood experiences, on all of these things. As research came out, I was learning it and thinking, I've got to change my parenting. And that's not something I would have gotten in individual therapy or even in group support. I would just like, oh rerouting, just like on our GPS, like, oh, rerouting, rerouting, I have been doing some things I need to change. And I may need to apologize. And oh, you know, but that is really important. That really helped me those that career for 30 years really helped.
0: Well, and I just really wonder as I'm as we're coming to a close, I think about that model that your own biological dad gave you at 20 when he apologized so sincerely, I wonder if that just planted the seed in you so that you could then apologize to your daughter for your part right? in, Absolutely. in choosing their father and subjecting them to, allowing them to be subjected to what they endured. He mm-hmm. did give me that healthy role
1: modeling of that. And I, I think that's the biggest thing he ever, you know, we didn't get to know each other deeply, but that was so important. And I, I still admire accountability. I really do.
0: It's a huge gift. Well, Elizabeth, Meredith, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I'm honored by your story and that you would share it here. For those interested, uh, reading pieces of me rescuing my kidnapped daughters is recommended. There's some, it, it really does read like, like a detective story. And thank the you. film, I have to say, my expectations of Lifetime are not always high, but I have to say that this film was done really, really beautifully. I I found it quite close I mean it's encapsulated of course they have to leave some things out because it's 90 minutes only but I thought that it really did honor did you feel like it did honor to your story I did I was so happily happily grateful yes and I just the
1: nicest production company in the world and they really listened to what was important to me and I feel like wow I I do love it they did a beautiful job
0: oh that's great well, you can find that through Lifetime, and it's called Stolen by Their Father. And it's on Amazon Prime as well for just a few bucks to rent. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, that's new. Good. So, so you can find it on Amazon. All right. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, and blessings to you. I wish you continued growth and health and happiness where you are.
1: Thank you so much, Betsy. It's been so great to hang out with you today and to have this conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: I've been reflecting on my conversation with Lizbeth Meredith, my, what a thing she's gone through to have survived her own family, the ordeals and the abuse and the kidnapping, all of those things, and then to vow to herself that her own family would never endure that and then only to find that it does. You know, so often we accidentally duplicate the, the patterns of our family because of what exactly... Elizabeth said that felt like home. It felt familiar. And if you're accustomed to troubling things in your history, you may be more comfortable with troubling things than you ought to be. I wonder how many times we've all made that mistake. The other thing that came to mind about Elizabeth's story is that she talked about in answer to my question, how did you make it through? She said, I had a lot of help. I got a lot of support. She used therapy when she could afford it, or even when she couldn't, she got the free stuff. She had her co-workers, her community of loved ones and people that she counted on. And very often I think that we think we're alone. And when we look at people who are making it through difficult times, we think that they're making it alone. And in fact, they have a whole pit crew of people around them, supporting them, providing them, Not only assistance, but support and emotional encouragement and all kinds of things. So that notion of having to do it alone, that kind of cowboy thing, it just really rarely works. The other thing that really comes to mind when I think about Elizabeth's story is the question of time. If you read her book or watch the film that's been made about it, you'll see how much time this took, that this did not happen Overnight, and this was this was an ongoing, enduring, absolute marathon of a challenge, and I'm reminded of a quote that I have here from Henry Van Dyke, a philosopher, writer, theologian, and he says, "Time is too slow for those who wait, too swift for those who fear, too long for those who grieve." too short for those who rejoice. But for those who love, time is eternal. Time is an accordion, isn't it? It contracts and expands. I know that during COVID, it felt like it went on forever and now we look back and it seems like a wisp in a weird way. And when we're struggling, when we're striving, oh, it just seems like it's forever. But we have to come back to the love part. That's what gets us through love, support. Those are pretty good extra blooms. And I hope that wherever you are, that you're finding your way to bloom.